Welcome to The Path and the Practice, a podcast dedicated to sharing the professional origin stories of the attorneys at Foley and Lardner LLP, a full-service law firm with over 1,000 lawyers across the U.S. and abroad. I'm your host, Alexis Robertson, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Foley. In each episode of this podcast, you'll hear me in conversation with a different Foley attorney. You'll learn about each guest's unique background, path to law school, and path to Foley and Lardner. Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. This episode features a conversation with Steve Vasquez. Steve is a transactional partner out of Foley's Tampa office with a practice focused on mergers and acquisitions and securities-related matters. Steve is also a former member of Foley's management committee and the current chair of Foley's business law department. Steve attended Florida State University for undergrad and earned his JD from the University of Florida College of Law. Also, I've been bearing the lead here, which is that this episode is a little bit different and that it's not me in conversation with Steve. It instead features the audio from a fireside chat that Steve had from a meeting of Fuerza Foley, which is Foley's Hispanic slash Latino affinity group. In this discussion, Steve's actually in conversation with Fuerza Foley co-chairs Roland Potts and Katie Khalifa who are essentially my co-hosts for this episode, even though they didn't know they would be doing this. That's what they effectively are. So quick background about Roland and Katie is that Roland is a litigation of counsel out of Foley's Miami office, and Katie is an intellectual property partner out of Foley's DC office. And in this discussion, they garner so much great wisdom and insight from Steve. They start off getting him to talk about his practice. They also get him to reflect on being a Cuban-American attorney and experiences of bias that he's encountered and also how he's navigated that. They get him then to reflect on his various leadership roles, also the importance of mentorship and his practice. And of course, I say of course, because I'm convinced this is one of Steve's favorite topics, they get him to talk about business development. It is a discussion he is passionate about and something he is very good at. And I can personally attest to this as I had the opportunity to attend a client pitch with Steve. In the discussion, Steve also discusses law firm strategy and reflects on both Foley's growth and overall brand strategy over the last couple of decades. And it's really a discussion that you're only going to get from someone who's been been a part of and continues to be a part of the senior leadership at Foley and Lardner. So this discussion is wide ranging, very interesting, and it officially means I will stop chasing Steve to be on the podcast The other thing I will note is that discussion starts off with Roland asking Steve a question. So that's whose voice you're going to hear first. And my final note is because I wasn't in conversation with Steve and didn't get to ask him this, on his behalf, I will say if there's something in this discussion that piques your interest or a question you have for Steve, feel free to find him on Foley.com. And this goes quadruply the case if you are a Foley lawyer who wants to talk to Steve about business development. With that, I hope you enjoy this discussion from Fuerza Foley's conversation with Steve Vasquez. The first question to Steve, can you tell us a little bit about your practice and not really kind of maybe what you focus on, but you know what your typical day looks like? I know that you wear various hats and have worn various hats at different times, so I'm sure your day starts early and ends late, but if you could tell us a little bit about that, it'd be great. Yeah, sure thing. So as Katie mentioned, I'm principally an M&A lawyer. I think there's benefits and detriments to whatever practice you choose, and there's some luck involved too in where you end up. I have fortunately am involved in a practice area that suits my personality. 
my day does start early. It's unpredictable. It's kind of a hectic schedule. And it often includes working into the evening and at night. That's the way it's always been. And I think that kind of suits me. I don't mind that kind of lack of predictability and variability in the day. But, you know, it's a, a typical day looks like, you know, the first thing you do is you sort through the emails that you slept through. And the last thing you do is you sort through them all to try not get bombarded the next morning. And then, you know, as the more senior person now, you've got to manage the process from the client perspective. The team manages the process from a day-to-day perspective, but you check in on the, you know, the senior associate or whoever is running various parts of the deal, you know, and try to provide guidance and help on the key issues. But in a word, it's hectic. It's a lot. And, you know, I think on the, it's not really the department chair job that does it. That's a little bit more predictable. You get busy in an M&A practice. That's just part and parcel. And anybody who's in it's going to kind of say the same thing if you're fortunate enough to be busy. And we've been lucky and we've been busy. So that's a good thing. When you were a junior attorney, how did you decide that M&A and corporate law was what you did want to practice? Well, it was either dumb luck or <laughs> God's providence. I don't know exactly. All of my family is from Cuba and I was born here and not unlike other children of Cuban parents, there was a strong push to become a doctor. Two of my grandparents were nurses and they had made a strong push from my earliest memories to do that. And when I was an undergrad, I was going down that path, you know, and I've gone pretty far down that path in terms of undergraduate with a biology major, et cetera. And, you know, the more it got closer to thinking about taking the next step to applying to medical school, the least happy I was. You know, I didn't really have any guidance on how to do it. And I'm not the type of person that seeks out guidance. That's not necessarily a a good thing. I'm more self-reliant. And so I just kind of just thought and thought. And I really did. I just kind of thought about it. And I remember one night I went for a walk and I said, I'm just going to pull the Band-Aid off and I'm going to switch. And I didn't tell anybody in my family, and I made the switch. I didn't get much of a response other than it was dumb. But as part of that, I had to decide where I was going to go for a path. And this is pre-internet, not to date me, but it was pre-internet. And I went to the library at FSU, which is not that all that great of a library. And I just started trying to figure out what I could, materials I could find. And I found this magazine article. It may sound stupid or exaggerated, but I just found this article, which was really short. And it described what corporate lawyers, transactional lawyers did. It described what investment bankers did. Now, the word investment banking was not a phrase I had ever heard before. I had no idea that that job existed. And I read this article and I thought, well, that sounds pretty cool. Maybe I should be an investment banker. And it was really comparing an M&A lawyer to an investment banker. And I thought, well, figure out where do you think your passion lies? And I think I thought on the advice side and on the relationship side, it would be through that. So when I was an undergrad, I made a decision that was ill-informed, not well thought out, and I think that there was a lot of luck involved, to be perfectly candid. That's how I got here, for better or for worse. (laughs) But funny enough, my Cuban parents also wanted me to become a doctor since I was a little kid, and I started off pre-med as well, and I ended up transitioning to business school three years in and kind of crunched four-year degree into two years. So that's exactly um, what I did. And for example, one of the foolish decisions I made, I could have just stuck with the biology degree instead of change. Me me too. Right. (laughs) You didn't need it, but I got, I went and got a finance degree instead. I thought that would be more helpful. I think it probably has been helpful, 
but I didn't need to do that. But that's, you know, these are the decisions you make. So ironically, kind of the same thing. When I was growing up, I always heard la medicina es muy bonita. La medicina es muy bonita. All the time. Yeah, and mi hijo va a ser doctor. <laughs> I never heard that. La medicina es muy bonita. That's what I always heard. Anyway. Well, you do have a focus on the healthcare industry in a lot of your deals, right? Do you think maybe having some exposure to the healthcare profession helped with that? No, I don't think so. I think that's really more of just being opportunistic. You know, we had a brand <laughs> in healthcare. Again, you just kind of get into the deals you get into. And I, I got into a client representing them as kind of second chair that was in the health insurance space and it was growing. It turned out to be a pretty big company. And we went through a complicated capital raise and a complicated sale. And I got to know a lot of people through that, including some investment bankers, and that turned into some referrals. And then that kind of took off on itself. But that one deal, you know, really created and that one client relationship really created the starting path to a big part of my practice. But I don't just, you know, look, I, I'm a healthcare transactional lawyer. If that's what I need to be, I'm, uh, I also, you know, represent people doing all kinds of stuff. So <laughs> and that was more opportunistic. So how did you wind up at Foley specifically? I knew what I wanted to do and then luck didn't really work out. When I graduated law school, we were in a pretty, you know, still kind of a recession. It was early in Clinton's presidency. The legal market hadn't bounced back. And I couldn't get any interviews for uh, transactional work. It was all bankruptcy and litigation. But there was a, a group of lawyers who had spun off from a different national firm and they needed somebody. So I joined them. But fast forward, a couple of one of my very best friends from law school was in our Jacksonville office. Another close friend of mine was in our Tampa office. And they introduced me to Foley. And I was looking to make a move as a third year lawyer. And the, the market had really jumped back and they didn't really hire there wasn't really many people doing corporate work as mid-level associates. And so there's a big demand for it. A couple of good friends of mine spoke so highly of Foley that that's how I ended up here. Oh, that's awesome. And if I can do math, it's what, almost 30 years that you've been here? 25 years? No, 25, 20, 26. 25. Yeah. 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 I think I've been practicing for 28 or nine doing the math. Yeah. So. It was very nice. You know, they did speak very highly of the firm. And, and, you know, as we go through some of these other things, I'll give you my thoughts on mentorship, which I think is a really important part of what we're doing here. But I interviewed with a guy who turned out to be my mentor. And I think he's a very brilliant guy. He's retired now. But he said something that I thought was insightful. It was very direct, maybe almost too direct. I was considering a job in Atlanta. And he said, let me give you some advice. You want to be at a firm like Foley. Your trajectory will be more limited in a major law firm in the South, period. And you will do much better in a firm like Foley that is all meritocracy. And it was not very disguised code for somebody with your last name may not have as many opportunities. At that time, it's a different time, right? It's not today. I thought it was interesting that he felt so comfortable being that bold. And it was direct. I mean, this was direct, like a father would say. It was impactful. It caused me to think. And that's one of the reasons I ended up at Foley, because I thought I'd have a good mentor there. Let's talk about mentors. How did you go about forming those relationships and collecting mentors, did fully have a formal mentorship program 
than the way it does now. Yeah, I mean, Foley was <laughs> like a lot of firms. Foley was a different firm back then. And so no is in short the answer. There wasn't anything like that. A lot of programs weren't formalized. You know, it was a big firm, but it was really more regionally managed or locally managed. And again, luck played a huge part of it. That same, when I got hired, there were a bunch of people that left to become investment bankers, ironically yeah. enough. Yeah, two pretty key people in the Tampa office left. There was a really big opportunity for better or for worse. And a lot of times it was for the worse that I was working with my mentor directly. And so, you know, he found me, I found him. And then that was that. And so he was always my formal and informal mentor through the day that he retired. I didn't have to go out finding them. It just was kind of just appeared for me. And do you have mentors now, now that you're more senior? I will say that the answer to that is yes. I was on our management committee and I think I got on there like 10 years ago. And maybe this is kind of a better answer to your question. I felt not qualified or have enough experience to participate meaningfully. At least that was my feeling. I hope it wasn't totally true, but it might have been. <laughs> and I really sought out a mentor on that committee, and that was Stan Jaspin. And unfortunately for him, unlike Marty, the, I should give names, by the way, Marty Traber was my mentor. But on the management committee, how did he, I found Stan. And unfortunately for him, I stuck to him. And so <laughs> he didn't have a choice but to take me on because I would just call him. I'd call him sometimes and he'd say, he'd call me sometimes. He'd say, well, unlike you, that doesn't have anything that they want to talk about. I have specific items I want to talk to you about. But I would call him all the time. And even if I didn't have an agenda item, I wanted that mentorship and I sought it out. And I sought it out very purposefully from Stan. And I think that's been very beneficial to me. If you're going to serve in firm leadership, you better do a good job for your people. Yeah, absolutely. uh, And I figured I'm going to get mentorship from the best so I can do my best. As a junior attorney, we all make mistakes. And how did you navigate that learning curve and dealing with potential biases? You know, you mentioned that maybe a a large firm in the South might not look favorably upon uh, Vasquez. So how did you navigate that sometimes tricky waters? Well, I made a lot of mistakes. A lot of times I was I wasn't experienced enough to handle what I was doing. But Marty took a bigger view of things. He was never somebody, and I've tried to be this way. I'm not as successful as him. But he's like water off a duck's back. I'd go in his office and I'd mess this up and he'd say, it's okay, let's fix it. Or if we can't fix it, that's okay too. There are other deals and we'll get we'll do better on the next one. So he never, ever said anything negative, even when there were plenty of negative things to be said. Or if there were guidance, he would handle it in a positive way. And I've tried to always do the same when associates or others have made, you know, errors on deals. But one time in specific, I remember a client came down on me directly and I didn't get a chance to respond before Marty went after him and went after him very aggressively. And that's a lesson that I haven't stopped learning. And I don't know if it's to your question about biases. He was very protective of this very topic to not allow negative biases to have a negative impact on my career. And he was very uh, watchful of that. And I tried to do the same. We were working on a deal. I won't mention the name this time, but we had an associate send out an email that opposing counsel to reacted very negatively to. And I was driving down the street 
and I saw the email pop and I look at it and I saw that it had negative tone and I glanced at it at a red light or something. Then I pulled over because I didn't want a response to get out before I could. And I pulled over in the meat in the side of the road in the shoulder and I wrote back a caustic response and I went after the guy hard. And then he came after me and then I did it again. And he had all his associates on and I raked him over the coals and he deserved it. And he backed off. And I didn't do that for me. I did that because somebody protected me and I protected this person. It was a woman. And so and I, I know for a fact that he was such an ass because she was a woman. And, you know, we were going to have a fight that day and we won't. So it was good. So you learn. You learn from mentors. You know, honestly, that's really the, the moral of the story. Yeah, that's awesome. I've had clients ask me if my husband allowed me to do certain things like, you know, travel and, and such. And there's all kinds of stuff that happens. Yeah. All kinds. <laughs> all kinds. So it's, it's great to see you sticking up for your team. In terms of early in, in your career, you said that sometimes you felt you were over your skis, right? So to speak at, at times that in terms of the projects that you were working on, how did you, I guess, work to overcome it? Right. Because, it, you know, I think there's a, a sink or swim, right, kind of moment. Is there anything in particular that you would give in terms of advice to help deal with those moments, right, where you feel you're over skis or underwater, you know, whatever analogy you want to give it? Yeah, I think we, we do a much better job at mentoring and staffing things now. I think that we try to prevent that a little bit better than the past. You know, I did all kinds of pokey stuff. You know, I would, PLI seminars weren't online then. And I would always ask for approval to go attend them to learn securities law and m a And, you know, I tried really hard to supplement what I was doing and learn. And I, I always work super hard. You know, I know we'll get to bias. I always had the perspective that I had to work harder. And so, you know, I had a lot of luck and a lot of opportunity. The one thing I could control was the working hard part. And I tried not to let it discourage me. I had a guy at one time say I was negotiating for something and this guy at Wild Gotchel in New York, a pretty senior partner. And he said, you know, Steve, uh, common shareholders never get rights like that. And I thought, OK, well, let's remember that not to ask for that next time, because, you know, sometimes you learn in the loss. I tried to just try to stay humble and, you know, do the best I could and figured it would come. I tell the associates all the time, I don't really exactly know if this is the right way to do it. Let's figure it out or let's call so-and-so and let's bounce it off them. I do call, still do. I mean, this is just for associates. I mean, you should, you know, how do you get through being over your skis? You know, I, there are a variety of partners that I call for technical assistance. You know, Brian Schultz in Milwaukee, Omar Lucia in uh, Detroit, a variety of people I call to say, hey, this is how I'm thinking about it. But I honestly don't know. What do you think? And then we kind of bat it together, you know, it's a team sport. And being a team sport, how have you built that kind of relationship, right? In a national firm across different states and, and cities, you know, how have you built those relationships over time so that you kind of have those people that you can identify and go to? Is it just getting out there or were you deliberate in searching people's profiles or how do you go about building that network, right? That you've established for yourself? In the early days, I'll give a lot of credit to Marty. He was very hands-on in terms of not so much the technical part of what we're doing, but he was very hands-on and being a good mentor in terms of business development, in terms of building relationships with investment banking firms or whoever. He was very intentional about building a brand about himself and also very concerned about my brand. And he was very concerned or interested in my brand internally. And so he always took up the mantle for me 
And I would give him that credit. You know, I don't think, I mean, I went to a meeting, my first retreat once, and I was going to a practice group meeting. And one of the partners said to the partner sitting next to him that was on a panel, and I guess he thought that I couldn't hear him, but this particular partner has a big voice. And he said, who the F is that? (laughs) And, uh, you know, because this was a Milwaukee practice group. But Marty was very good about that. I built relationships with people, and he would help bridge that gap for me. And kind of bridging that gap, you know, how did you translate that? I guess, you know, when you're building out a book of business, right, when you're, you know, coming up as a senior counsel and in your early days as a partner, building your practice up, how did you build it, right? You know, was it internal marketing, external marketing, a combination, neither, (laughs) something else? It was all external. It was 100% external. And when I got the Foley, you know, Foley wasn't well known in Florida or in Tampa. We had a growing reputation. It wasn't an unknown, but it was kind of the early days of building a corporate practice here. And so it was good to be a part of that, but I was always very mindful of the fact that the brand was not strong enough yet and growing and needed attention. And the partners that we had here were very attentive to that. And they were very active in the community and in everything they could get active in to build the firm's brand as the go-to corporate firm in town, whether that was for securities or M&A. And so I was very part of that culture. And it was really a culture of business development that I grew up in. And it was always very clear to me that I needed to help carry the load for that at a when I was a partner. That wasn't someone I asked. It's just part of the culture. And I embraced it and I just did it. You know, it's a lot of breakfast, lunches and dinners. I'm not a big breakfast guy, so it's really more the the dinner and drinks part. But it's a lot of time and being intentional about it. And, you know, I would go to things sometimes not feel very comfortable at them. I told somebody a story. I think I told this at a senior council thing. There was this conference in Florida called the Florida Venture Capital Conference. And other law firms had a prominent role. And we didn't. And I liked it. I thought the venture thing was kind of cool. And so I wanted to go. And so, you know, we got approval for a little sponsorship or whatever. And I went. And so I walked in this meeting and I didn't know anybody. I mean, I did. I was like the outsider. I felt, you know, you you see those, it's like almost in a movie. You walk in and everybody, the music stops, the spotlight's on you, and everybody gets quiet. I'm sure that happened. At least in my mind, I'm 100% that that happened. And I was this close to just turning around and going to my car as God is my witness. I couldn't have felt less comfortable. It'd be impossible to feel less comfortable. I know it was inside, but let's just, I assume that's what was really happening. And I found one person, literally one that I knew. It was this woman who was a client of ours. She probably was only like, why won't this guy leave me alone? Well, because I didn't have anybody else to talk to. And, you know, I powered through it. And when I was there and when I went to anything, people would always say, hey, uh, you know, how's this partner doing? Or how's that partner doing? Nobody knew or anything who I was. And I couldn't have felt less comfortable. And I just kept doing it. And I just kept doing it. And I just kept doing it. The irony is all these years later, I rarely go to these meetings. And whenever somebody else goes, they always say, hey, where's Steve? Where's Steve been? Why didn't Steve come back? Or why can't we get Steve to come back to these? And now I'm the person that they asked for there. That's proof of just effort because I was no great shakes. I'm still no great shakes. But if you just go and try, you'll feel more comfortable eventually. When did you start going to these things? And, and how did you choose? Because we're all super busy with limited free time and there's a million, you know, bar association meetings and 
different corporate events. So how did you select what to do with your precious time? And that's and- the, the not positive about it. There's just not enough time. And so I was in my early 30s and, you know, Marty was very insistent that I do these types of things, not telling me which ones, but I I really felt like as not a specialist that I was going to have to make my own way in the world and the world in this case being Foley and Lardner and that I would, while it was easy to be handed deals as a younger lawyer or as a senior associate, that would stop. And I was always very mindful of the fact that I would be out of a job if I didn't do it. And so I would just force myself to do it. And then I would pick and I would pick all kinds of ones. Some of them good, some of them not good. I went to that Florida Venture Capital Conference once in Boca. I drove back in the middle of the night, came to my desk, worked on documents and got documents out so I could still go. There are sacrifices to be made. To develop business, you have to make sacrifices. That's just fact. You can talk about business development all day long. I'm happy to spend another hour after this talking about it with whoever wants to talk about it. But there's one, only one common thread that connects all people that are successful in business development. They all put in the time, regardless of whether it's a blog, which I've never written or done. I guess it's done if it's, I don't know, articles or blogs or whatever, or conferences or lunches and dinners. The common thread that goes through it is time. And if you don't have the time, I think it's virtually impossible unless you're incredibly lucky. And so you just have to put in the time. That's the only thing that I can tell you. You make sacrifices. Did you ever develop a like a system, right, that you would go through to kind of develop business? Or was it, like you're saying, kind of pounding the pavement and getting out there more than anything else? This is going to sound a little silly, but what I try to do is budget a certain amount of hours for it, regardless of what that number was. And I tried to be, and I still try to be fairly accurate in my business development time entries. I mean, it's not like a client entry, so the point one, or, you know, that doesn't really matter, right? But, you know, if you go golfing with somebody, you know, it's at four and a half, five hours, that doesn't really matter. But I try to be very intentional about recording that time. And then at the end of the year, seeing if I hit budget or not. And that's the one thing, as the one discipline I had, because again, the other thing I think about, but at least from my perspective, it seems to me that you don't know what's going to work. It's a drop-in approach. You have to try a lot of different things. So it wasn't so much to me about picking the right ones. It was just picking a lot of them and then dedicating enough time to it and still having enough time for the billable work. That's what I tried to do. So talk to us about the follow-up. You go to this venture capital meeting, you make a connection with somebody. What next? How do you translate that good connection? You don't follow up. You forget. You hear the company got sold and you say, why didn't I follow up on that one? That still happens. And so- Yeah, you got to make the time. That's probably the weakest part of my business development. At the first, the front part is the easier part, I think. The follow-up is harder, but, you know, I think it's very effective. You you just have to keep on them. And, you know, this isn't, you know, it's probably outside the scope of this hour discussion. But, you know, I do think that there is a, a certain style you have to figure out in terms of asking for the work and when the appropriate time is. And, you know, sometimes you go to meetings, you think you're going to ask for it, and then circumstances change, and then you pivot. But I do think that uh, that's something that you learn over time. And, you know, for people that are interested in that, I think asking people that are successful in business development for the younger attorneys and to be more specific about how they went about it and not let them off the hook with a general answer and maybe grab them for coffee or something and really try to dig into it. Because I do think that that is a more nuanced skill set. Is there anything over time, obviously, you've, you're now head of the department and you've been on the management committee, you've built a very successful practice. 
Is there anything that you think kind of makes you stand out from other M&A attorneys? And has that worked its way into your pitches, either informal pitches or formal pitches? Like you've over time started to focus on A, B or, or C in terms of what makes you stand out from other attorneys and kind of how you project that forward. Yeah. So for M&A, our biggest competitors usually are firms that have a more of a Wall Street type of presence. I use that as a euphemism for, you know, whatever firm that is. And those firms have typically very strong brands in M&A. And the one thing, again, a little bit of luck, the very first quote, big deal I got on my own was a sale of a company for around $300 million. And I was like a second year partner. I was like on cloud nine, cloud nine. And after the deal, we ended up meeting, we were in New York and we met at the lobby bar at the Mandarin and the general counsel for my client, I'm sorry, the the owner of my, we were sell side. Nobody would hire me for a buy side deal at that age. So we were sell side and the founder and majority shareholder me, the general counsel and the biz dev person from the buyer were all together. And the buyer was like a family office type, big billionaire founder. My guy says to the general counsel, hey, how did you select, who was your lawyer on this? And he said it was, well, you know, it was Paul Weiss. He said, that's not what I mean. I mean, who, who was your lawyer? Who was the lawyer for you on this deal? And he said, it was some guy named Joe Smith. He goes, that's interesting. We work on deals for months. Never heard of his name, never saw him, not on any calls, never in any of the negotiations. You know why I hired Steve? This guy taught me a really good lesson. He said, let me tell you why I hired Steve. And Steve doesn't know why I hired Steve. It was between Steve and two very prominent Chicago firms. And Steve is the only person that told me that he wouldn't hand off the deal and he would own it. It would be his deal and he would know everything that was happening and he would run it and he's here. That's why I hired him. It had nothing to do with anything else. And I've never forgotten that. And I still use that in my pitches. And it's really effective, really effective to say, I'm your person. Brand is really, really important. It's super important. And we do need to leverage our expertise more than our relationships because you can only be best friends with so many people. But I will tell you that at the end of it, people want their lawyer on their matter. And if they feel like you own it and you care about it and you're not going to pass it off, that's always been, I still use that and still seems to work. So I'm going to gonna keep riding that horse while it doesn't. It's great. So it's all about forming those relationships and making the other person feel special, right? Yeah, making every they, client. They, they, you care about the outcome. You know, we make pitches to general counsel. Mark Castle taught me this. His big pitch is, how can I make the life better for you? You've got this big budget. Tell me who the weakest firm in that budget is. And I'll tell you whether we have the fit for it. And if we don't, I won't try to sell it. He always asks for the, the easiest place to poke himself into. And that's mm-hmm. also very effective, by the way. How can I help you? Because the general counsel has one client. You know, we lose clients all the time. General counsel can't lose a client. They're done. Right. right. So I do the same thing when I'm talking to general counsel or clients themselves. I tell them, look, you know, you're running your business. You have nine million things to worry about. My job is to make sure that at least this one piece of your life is as easy as possible. You have one person to talk to. You have one person who knows everything. I do very much the same thing. And I think it is effective. People want that, right? People want to know that they have somebody that they can trust and they're not sending it off to the ether, so to speak, right? But they're that they're relating to somebody. At the end of the day, this is still very much a business of relationships. So I Absolutely. agree with you 100%. Yeah. And for some of our um, more junior associates on the call, you've probably heard the 
firm talk about being a trusted advisor, and that's exactly what that is. You're the person that the client can talk to and call if they need something. And if that's not your specialty, you'll find the person that they should talk to to get it handled. Let's switch gears a little bit, talk about some of your leadership roles within the firm. Right now, you're chair of the business law department, and what does that encompass? What are some of your responsibilities, decisions that that fall within, within that purview? They come from two directions. You know, it's from the bottom up. There's a lot of day-to-day in terms of staffing, you know, making sure we got enough people, making sure we don't have too many people. You hear law firms all the time focus on billable hours. And I think what gets lost in that discussion is that it's not the billable hours so much or the economics associated with the hours. The one way to make sure you don't do better as a firm in the future is don't keep people busy because your best people will leave. Your best people will be unhappy. And we spend a lot of time on recruiting, as do all firms, and you need to keep people busy to make them fulfilled. A busy attorney is happier attorney. It's a hard balance because then people get over, you know, then you say, okay, let's be careful on the hiring and then they can get overwhelmed. Then that's not a positive either. And we don't want that. And so managing that balance with Stan as the managing partner of the firm and with all of the practice group leaders is a big part of my job. And the other big part is the kind of overall strategy for the business law department, how that works with the sectors, how that fits for the whole firm, the brand of the law firm. How do we make it stronger? How do we have a strong business law practice? When I joined, we had a strong business law practice in Milwaukee. We had pretty strong business law practice in terms of brand in Madison. We didn't have a Boston office. We weren't in Texas. We weren't in Detroit. We had a strong brand in Jacksonville and we had a growing brand in Tampa. And I think that was it. If I'd left somebody out, I apologize. We weren't in New York. And so I'm very cognizant of the need to build our brand, to continue to do so. We have a brand that's not strong enough in the business law sense more generally in some of our markets. And I spend a lot of time focusing on that and what tactical steps that we can do to continue to strengthen our brand and our markets, whether that's through our efforts in lateral recruiting, which is also a very competitive market. You know, we have some, you know, Ruben and Freddie on the phone who just joined us. I mean, we spent a lot of time getting to know them and making sure that we'd be a good fit for each other. And I'm very confident that we are. And so I spent a lot of my time on that brand building. And then the last one is on the recruiting is that, as I mentioned, uh, you know, there's lots of different ways to do recruiting, I suppose. Nobody really showed me how. I make it my deals, and each one is its own little deal. And I put a lot of my personal effort into doing it. And so that takes a lot of my time. And what were some of your responsibilities on the management committee? And what does the management committee generally do? You know, they manage <laughs> the firm. Question. A loaded <laughs> question, for sure. You know, there were three years that I was on the compensation committee, and that was uh, a big part of what I did on the management committee. Another big part of what I did on the management committee was I worked on a variety of M&A opportunities for the law firm, including the Gardier deal, just as part of the team, not as a lead or anything, but just as part of the team and evaluating some opportunities that we passed from, evaluating other opportunities that we went further down the road on and then pulled back that wasn't for us. And so I think that in terms of like the big ticket items where we had the most meaningful impact, I would say, would be on that, that those are big decisions. You only become a thousand person law firm once. You only become a 2000 law firm once. And so you don't get two swings at it. And there's no one doing it once you do it. It's tricky. We had some pretty uh, interesting opportunities that 
we both proceeded on and some that we didn't. That was the, a big one. So it sounds like both roles take up a lot of time. And how did you know that it was the right time for you to take on that extra, that extra work? I didn't, you know, honestly, I don't, you know, just, <laughs> one thing I always said was when I got a management committee is whatever vote I have or whatever say I have, even though it would be bad practice to have those meetings on teams and having the whole law firm there, I just always assumed I have 500 partners sitting behind me listening to me and let that be my guidepost. Would I be embarrassed about anything I said? Or am I trying to do something that I don't think would have their backing? Maybe I should be embarrassed about some things I said, or maybe it doesn't have their backing, but it wasn't with intent. I was always very mindful that any leadership in the firm is servant leadership, whether that's recruiting or running the summer program, you know, you're not doing it for the money or the glory. It's servant leadership. And I was asked to do these things. I was humbled by the request. And if somebody was going to ask me to do it, I felt that I should. That's how it came down. But I didn't, you know, ever seek anything like that. I just did what, you know, what people asked and I tried to do the best I could. You talked a little bit about it being a servant leadership. And, and so why is it important to you personally to be able to be in these leadership roles and help guide the firm and, and now the, one of the major departments within the firm? Well, you could have one of two types of firms. You could have a firm that just says, we're just going to go off in 500 different directions with 500 partners. Good luck, everybody, and see where you end up, right? You can have a firm that has a more national strategy that's concerned about its brand. And I think that the latter is better than the former. And so I do think it's really important for people to participate in any way that they're asked to because the better managed firm is going to be the more successful firm. And while there's economic rewards for doing so, and we all like that, it's really important for the health of our firm. If we don't continue to do better, we're by definition doing worse. Other firms are smart too. And we make all kinds of decisions. You know, we've, we, I met a guy yesterday and he's interested in us and he's in the West Coast and he does IT transactions essentially. And he said, our firm walked away from a venture practice. Rates aren't good enough, bunch of clients that don't pay. They don't want anything to do with it. And that's their judgment. And I think that that is a fine conclusion. He doesn't work at Skadden, but if he worked at Skadden, I think that's a fine conclusion. If you're Marty Lipton, you probably don't need to represent a startup at Walkdown. <laughs> In my judgment, that's a bad strategy. And it's a bad strategy for Foley and Lardner. And so we have spent a lot of time building that vertical and that brand. What we've done in Boston by bringing on a, a group of 13 or 15 lawyers, Susan Pravda and all the rest in 2005, you know, we have over 100 lawyers in Boston and a real brand. What we've done on the West Coast with our NorCal expansion, these aren't things that just happen. You know, these were specific directions that came from management, the management committee, the department chairs before me. And it is really important to really think through what you want to accomplish because it has big ramifications in my view. Bringing it back to Latin heritage, do you think that kind of your feeling of call to leadership, right, or answering the call to leadership, your background, your upbringing, your heritage kind of gave you that definition or that purpose of being a servant, right, in, in those leadership roles? I don't know. I think that it did give me the perspective that if you're not attentive to something, you can lose it. We have a special firm and people talk about our legacy and we've been around a long time. Law firms can go up in a snap. Just like that can be done really fast. What happened to the Brobeck firm was remarkable. You know, I grew up in a family where everybody lost everything like that. And I maybe I'm more mindful of 
how delicate everything is at any moment in time. And so I try hard not to lose it, but also try hard to push it forward and be bold. You're not going to get anywhere by being passive about things and waiting. You still have to be bold and push forward with the strategy. Just pick the right one. <laughs> well, that decision process, I'm sure, is the difficult one, right? And, and when to pull the trigger. Why do you think it's important to participate in leadership? You know, because in terms of making the decisions and pushing it forward, right? It could be someone else, right? But when asked, you said, no, I'll, I'll do it. I'll take on that role. It's hard to be objective and no. So I just assumed if someone asked me to do something, they put some thought into it. I'll assume that they thought about it. And so I would just do my best and try to not let them down. Going back to your Latino heritage, did you have any cultural norms that you had to adjust to fit your professional life? Like, for example, in my family, we're Mexican-American and, and respecting your elders was extremely important. And when I joined the firm, it was hard for me to push back on my supervising attorneys when I thought that they were doing something wrong because I thought I was being disrespectful and that was not good. But others took it as me being too meek. Did you have anything similar that that you had to just change for Foley or for being an attorney? I don't know. You know, maybe listen more than talk and not trying to push too quick and taking things in and, you know, not reacting and rather be more thoughtful before jumping forward and being bold maybe fits in that category to be candid. You just learned it over time, right? Yeah, we have, we're fortunate to work with such great people. So if they have an opinion, they probably they have an opinion for a reason. You better to work through it together rather than just react. I'm still working on that. <laughs> <laughs> just one final question, and then maybe we'll, we'll take some questions if anybody has. You know, you've been at Foley for a long time now, right? And like you said, I think the firm is fair to say a vastly different place than it was when you first started in some ways, and in some others is probably still the same. So what do you think has kept you here? For so long through the ups and downs of of your careers the good days and the bad days right what's what's kept you coming back to your tamp office every day people ask me that sometimes you know what's kept me here and it's, it's always an interesting question you know i wouldn't understand what it would be like to not be here you know this is where my friends are these are the people i care about you know these are the people that cared about me these are the people that helped me these are the people that i helped this is the place that I think has always been incredibly fair to me. You know, you asked about biases before, you know, as I was thinking about today and answers, you know, one, you know, how was kind of being Cuban or Hispanic or Latino impacted my practice or my career? And the honest answer is, I don't know. I don't know. I think Foley has done an extraordinary job of caring who I was as a person. And I try to do the same for the people I impact. And as department chair, that's quite a number of people. And that in and of itself would always keep me at Foley because it is a firm that that cares and also has a great strategy and it fits from a professional standpoint as well. But I will say that when I was in law school, as a younger lawyer, just a younger person, you don't always exactly know what's happening. And so, you know, when I was in law school, I was fortunate to do well. I was top of my class, law review. They started a tax review and I and they needed people from the law review to do that. And I booked tax. So they put me on the tax review. I booked a bunch of courses. And then it came time to finding a job. And, you know, people are careful nowadays what they say. And every once in a while, you get a little window into what they think. And so I thought it would be a good idea. 
and I went to the University of Florida for law school, which is a, a great law school. But, you know, other law schools, Ivy League law schools are more prominent. So I thought a judicial clerkship would really be kind of strong on my resume. And so I asked one of my law school friends to ask her dad to write me a letter of recommendation. And I know the guy and I know him pretty well. It wasn't like it was a stranger. Like I knew him really well. And this guy was super successful, had a very successful business, and he was a very prominent politician. And so I thought this is the best thing ever. And he said, sure, I'd be happy to do it. And he sends a letter off to, you know, some judge that he knows, a very prominent judge. I don't remember which one now. It would have been a very prestigious clerkship. And I wish I would have kept the letter. He literally wrote in there, this is a friend and someone trying to help me. And this is what he said, some version of, and it was short, so it wasn't like a two-page letter, right? One of the best things about Steve is that when you listen to him talk and you get to know him, you'd never know he was Hispanic. He acts just like us. And he wasn't embarrassed to say that. In fact, he was trying to help me. And his view is that statement would be helpful. And I'm thinking of it as, who could be so stupid? Maybe he thought, hey, the person receiving this may want Mm -hmm. to hear that. In fact, he obviously concluded that he did. Did it hurt my feelings? It maybe opened my eyes a little bit. You know, do we face biases? It would be easy enough for me to say, if you just work hard, if you just go to those conferences, if you just devote X amount of hours to business development, you get to know the bankers, you do a great job, build relationships with mentors, that you're never going to have any problems or face any an uphill battle because of your background. You know, the honest answer is that's, that's probably not true. But what's also probably true is you'll never know. Because I got a little bit of a window, almost accidentally, into what somebody thinks. And this wasn't like some schmuck. So how many other people think like that? You know, I don't know. Did it help me? I don't know. I think it's better to be mindful than not. I don't know what I did different as a result. I think that part of me was, I'll show him and people that so stupid. But what are you going to do? You know, I don't know what to do about it, but it's not true that it can't have an impact. It can. What you do with that, I guess, is your choice. I can't control what others think. Do I not get deals? Have I not been hired sometimes? Probably. I wouldn't know, but probably is the answer. So what do you do? You know, I don't know. You work harder. My father still says, you got to hustle. You got to hustle. Whether it's in sports or in business, you got to hustle. And it's in the hustle where you get through those biases. It's in the hustle. I think that is a perfect way (laughs) to conclude (laughs) this uh, fireside chat. Really fantastic time and, and, and responses. I really appreciate everything. Your candor in answering all of these questions. I'm nothing if not uh, blunt. So when Jay asked me to be department chair, he said, uh, I'm looking forward to see how your style does in department chair. Uh, I'm nothing if not transparent. And so I do my best into being transparent. We have two minutes left, so we can probably take one question. If we have any questions from the audience. If you could get one sort of practice or habit into the brains of all of the junior associates that you work with, what would that habit be? To care about the outcome of what they're working on. This is an awesome profession. With all due respect to accountants or, you know, some other profession, regardless of what practice area you're in, 
you get asked things all the time. And they're just basically saying, what should I do? Whether what position to take on a deal. And even if they don't ask, you tell them anyway. Care about the outcomes for your clients. They'll know that you do. And it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. That's a really tired expression, but it's true. If your career is this long, the part that you're an associate is this. You know, so keep in mind the other part. It's a long process, but we're part of a great firm with a great legacy, with great people, both in the professional staff and the lawyers and the partner, all the lawyers and the paraprofessionals and everybody. And so we have a lot of uh, wind at our sails. But if you care about the outcomes for your clients, that's the, the one thing I would say to keep in mind. Steve, thanks so much. Uh, I think uh, folks that follow, you're going to have a tough time uh, living up to this hour. So really appreciate it. Everybody, thanks for, for tuning in. And Katie, thanks for being such a wonderful co-host with me. Thanks, everybody. I appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity and look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley and Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley and Lardner LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice. 